Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. I hope you're well. To get exclusive access to new videos every week, videos which are packed with history, current affairs, and a whole lot more, sign up to my Patreon site. It's called Neil Oliver on Patreon and it helps to support the making of this podcast. Be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. So the Scots were saying, absolutely not, over our dead bodies, literally. In this podcast, we're standing shoulder to shoulder with people of unshakable faith in one of the most significant moments in Scottish history. An imperious and domineering monarch determined to have his own way. Riots and rebellion sweeping the country. And the National Covenant was born. In the blood-soaked decades that followed, the king lost his head. But with the restoration of the monarchy, his son, King Charles II, set about finishing the job, hounding, torturing and killing every covenanter he could find. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last episode, we sailed around the Irish coast, coming face to face with the fearsome Barbary Corsairs. Where are we now? Well, we're leaving behind one night of brutal violence to find ourselves in the middle of a century soaked in blood. A groundbreaking document born of faith and fidelity called the National Covenant was drawn up, and with a resounding clash of religious faiths, the monarchy went up against the Covenanters. It was here that the First Covenant was signed, in Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh. If anybody knows anything about Scottish tourist lore, you'll have heard of Greyfriars Bobby. Apart from Lassie, surely Greyfriars Bobby is the most famous dog (laughs) whose four paws have ever walked the face of the earth. And Greyfriars Bobby is named because of Greyfriars Kirkyard. 
There's as many versions of the Greyfriars Bobby story as there are wee rough terriers, but generally speaking, what we're dealing with in, in the story of Greyfriars Bobby is there was a, a shepherd, a Scotsman called John Grey in the 1850s. He was a shepherd to begin with, but in later life, he was a night watchman employed by the police. And he was accompanied towards the end of his life by a wee sky terrier that he called Bobby. He loved the wee dog and the wee dog loved him. John Grey was an older man and he died before the dog and he was buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard. And to everyone's amazement and according to the legend, the wee dog Bobby just stayed by his dead master's grave for the next 14 years. The rest of his life, he just hung about the graveyard and lay down on or near the, the grave forever after. And when the wee dog died, he was buried in unconsecrated ground near the gates of Greyfriars. As close as people thought he could decently be interred. He's not on holy ground, but he's as close to holy ground as they could put him. Such was the affection in which Bobby was regarded after all those years of loyal devotion to his dead master. And if you go now, if you visit Edinburgh and you go to Greyfriars Kirkyard, you'll come across a structure called George IV Bridge. And just as it comes to Greyfriars Kirkyard, there's a, a bronze likeness of Bobby there as a drinking fountain. And it's always very shiny because people go up and take photographs with it and they, they stroke it. So this, this wee bronze of Greyfriars Bobby is, is always, always shiny from people's you know, hands. There's a movie about it, a couple of movies, Greyfriars Bobby. So that introduces the name of Greyfriars Kirkyard. And the Kirkyard itself was put in place, it's what most people would consider in the city centre now. But at the time that it was built, it was more on the edge of town. In the 16th century, or up until the 16th century, there were many burials at St Giles, which is right on uh, the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. And dead people were buried around St Giles. But by the 16th century, it was completely overcrowded. And the stench of inadequately buried dead bodies around St Giles was becoming a major health hazard. And so the city fathers decreed that a new kirkyard would be set up and, and they set aside land beside what had been a monastery for the Grey Friars. And the Grey Friars were monks who followed the rule of St Francis. St Francis of Assisi. St Francis, who was famous for his love of animals and for believing that all of creation and all of nature were one. And so the people that followed Francis were the Grey Friars. So there had been a monastery on this location and the city fathers set it aside as a kirkyard, an overspill cemetery. So it has no church attached, it's just a cemetery. It was, it was laid out just as a burial ground for the people of Edinburgh. So it's an interesting note, actually, now that I come to think about it. In lots of churches, wealthy people would be buried in the crypt, which is to say, in the basement of the church, there'd be like stone sarcophaguses or whatever in family crypts, and they'd be buried in there, and they would be in lead coffins. But quite often, a lead coffin would split, and the smell of decomposition would rise up through the floorboards into the congregation of the church, and that's where you get the expression, the stinking rich. Is it really? Stinking rich refers to the fact that if you could smell a dead body in the church, <laughs> it was somebody wealthy that had been buried down in, the, down in the crypt. Hence, the stinking rich. But anyway, that's just a side note. 
So Greyfriars Kirkyard was set aside. Now, it's famous for Greyfriars Bobby, but really, really, its significance and why it's a place that I've counted as part of my love letter to the British Isles is because of what happened there in February 1638. Okay, now by that time the Kirkyard was well established and it was just a functioning graveyard. But it was in 1638 that the National Covenant of Scotland, a very famous, very significant document, was first made available for signing. Now, people will have heard of the National Covenant and they'll have heard of battles and struggle involving Covenanters. Covenanters were religious extremists, you might say, depending on your religious point of view, and they, and they fought against the king. But it, they took that name Covenanters because they had been signatories of this document, the National Covenant of Scotland. You might say it was all the fault of King Charles I. King Charles I was the son of King James VI and I. He was the Scottish king that replaced Elizabeth I when she died without an heir. And so the King of Scotland became the King of England also. Well, his son and heir was Charles I. Now, James, his father, had been born and raised and was King of Scotland for a long time before he was King of England. And he understood Scotland and he understood the Scots. But apart from the first couple of years of his life, Charles was raised and lived in London. He was a London type, <laughs> one of those metropolitan types. Yeah, like me. And he didn't have his father's innate, instinctive understanding of the Scots, which explains a lot of what happened next. He was very religious. He was raised in the English Anglican faith, which is a version of the Protestant faith. But there are many different versions of the Protestant faith. There are all sorts of denominations. So Charles I was, was raised as, a, as an Anglican. And he was very keen. And because that was the way he liked to worship, he wanted everyone in England and Scotland to worship in the same way that he did. Uh, and he commissioned a new Book of Common Prayer. The book that would be the basis for church services. And he co-wrote it along with his own appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud. So between the pair of them, they came up with this new book of common prayer and they wanted to introduce it into Scotland. Now, trouble, trouble right away because by 1637, the Scots were well out of their own reformation. During the middle 1500s and, and onwards, the Scots had reformed their church they had been through all sorts of religious agonies. And by the early decades of the 17th century, they were absolutely convinced that the way they were worshipping God was the only way. And they were not about to have that way of communicating with the Almighty interfered with by anyone, not even a king. You have to try and put yourself back in the mindset of people of faith in the 17th century. They live more than for anything else, they live for the love of their God and the worship that they're involved in. And they also enjoy the strict control that it places on themselves and on their neighbours. They like the atmosphere of intense control. And so the religious Scotland of the 1600s was quite a paranoid place with everybody watching everybody else to see who was worshipping hardest. There was a lot of zealotry around, so it was a febrile atmosphere. 
And I always think of it as being that it was as though they had, they imagined that they had tuned in the perfect signal that God was transmitting. They had a perfect picture on their religious tellies, if you like. And now King Charles I was sort of standing in the way of the screen and fiddling with the aerial. He was causing interference. He was blocking the signal as far as they were concerned. So they were outraged. So the very idea that Charles would try and bring in a new Book of Common Prayer and have the people of Scotland begin to worship in what they considered to be the English way was just anathema. As far as the Scots were concerned, the Anglican Church, although it was Protestant, was what they called, quote, the synagogue of Satan, which gives you a sense of the low regard in which they held it. The Reformed Scots, it was religion stripped back to the basics. The walls inside churches had been whitewashed. Any bright-coloured religious artwork had been painted over with whitewash. There was no decoration. There was no gold and finery. It was basic stuff. An altar, hard wooden pews, white walls, faith, faith and nothing but faith. And they looked on at, at elements of finery and fine clothes and elements that they associated with popery and Catholicism. The Scots looked on at the Anglican version of the Protestant faith and thought it was just too fancy pants. And they wanted nothing to do with it. And so the stage was set for, for real trouble. Was it a widespread feeling right across Scotland or just a small group of determined zealots? It, it, well, it, that's a good question. It was pretty well entrenched in various parts of Scotland. I mean, Scotland, they were still in the middle of it. Scotland was a reformed Protestant country, but there were all sorts of variations on it and there were still those who wished that they could go back to Catholicism and all the rest of it. So it was a hot-tempered atmosphere. And so finally, on the 23rd of July, 1637... The unfortunate minister in question was James Hanney, who was the Dean of St Giles, the big cathedral. And it was him who was first to stand up in front of a congregation and start preaching from this Book of Common Prayer that had been brought up from Charles and London. And according to legend, there was a tough old woman called Jenny Geddes, waited till he started reading from the Book of Common Prayer, and then she stood up, picked up the wooden stool that she'd been sitting on and flung it at him. And she shouted, who dares to say mass in my ear? So she's implying that Catholicism has come into the, the Protestant church in Edinburgh. There's a riot. There's a riot. It's chaos. And from one church to the other, this kind of sense of rebellion spread. There was violence. And very quickly, a rebel parliament was established. Those who were minded to properly defy the king they established a rebel parliament and they commissioned two men to effectively write a contract that they could all sign that would be a, a visible way of swearing their allegiance to God. It would be something that they could put their, their signatures on that would say that they absolutely were worshipping in the correct way and here's my signature or here's my mark. And the two people that were commissioned to do it were uh, a church minister called Alexander Henderson and a lawyer, a legal man, who was Archibald Johnston of Warriston. And so they, they put together this, this document, and this is the National Covenant of Scotland. And they called it Covenant, they used Covenant, because they were self-consciously and deliberately echoing the covenant that was signed between God and the people after the flood. 
That was the original biblical covenant where God basically said, having wiped earth clean, I won't do that again. Now we have an understanding. I will never undo creation again. That was the original covenant. And so the National Covenant of Scotland was deliberately named to echo that sentiment of a deal struck between God and the righteous people. It was first made available for signing in Greyfriars Kirkyard on the 28th of February 1638. Okay, so the Book of Common Prayer came up in 1637 and by the February of the following year, all of this had happened. Rebellion, National Covenant of Scotland and it was out in the open air in the kirkyard that, that a copy of it was first available and people came and signed it in their thousands. And the reason that it matters is it's the first time certainly in Scottish history, where the rank and file were invited to put their name down in history. I mean genuinely, from the lowest to the highest. So as well as lords and ladies and titled people and the great and the good of the land, the National Covenant of Scotland was also there to be signed by the ploughman and the fishwife and the cleaners and the people that swept the streets. Because the thinking was that as far as God was concerned, every soul weighed the same. So whether you were the king or the woman who cleaned the toilets, as far as God was concerned, both souls were of equal value. And so it became a necessity to be seen to sign this document. Now, obviously some people signed it willingly out of religious faith, but much like the atmosphere at the moment, people were forced into signing the covenant, whether they wanted to or not because there was a degree of peer pressure. In the febrile atmosphere of 17th century Scotland, you had to be seen to sign this thing. And thousands of copies of the National Covenant of Scotland still survive. They're in museums and and archives all over the place. And they are the most extraordinary documents because you see them and there are name after name after name. And some of them are confident signatures by educated people, well-practiced in writing, right down to people who couldn't write. And so there's just crosses and other marks. Sometimes people made their mark or wrote their name in their own blood. They cut their hand and dipped the nib of the pen into their own blood. Such was the desire properly to make their mark on this document. So the first document was signed in Greyfriars, but then lots of copies were sent all over Scotland to be signed. Yes, yes. February 1638, Greyfriars Kirkyard was the first time the first copy was available for for signing, for reading and signing. Then it was a ripple effect. Copies were sent to every parish. So people were signing them the length and breadth of the country. And that's why there's thousands of copies of it still survive. And it's, it's a very touching document. If you get beyond, I suppose, the religious fervour of it, for those for whom that kind of notion of, of that kind of intense faith is anathema, It's still moving to see ordinary people being invited to make their mark alongside the great and the good for the first time. It was a very egalitarian moment. Whether you were Lord this or Lady that, or whether you were a a farmer coming from the fields or someone that gutted fish down at the market, every signature, every soul counted. So it's a profoundly important moment. And it's the first document of its kind that invited people, all people, to make their mark and to register in history, if you like, in that way. And so, the covenant having been signed, Charles was livid. (laughs) 
<laughs> Charles, Charles blew a gasket and he sent an army north to try and crush this rebellion. This in turn was what was known in 1639 as the First Bishop's War. Because apart from the idolatry and the fancy clothes and the gold and the finery that the reformed Scots were appalled at, they were also appalled by the idea of bishops. They believed that the relationship between a person and God was direct, one-to-one, without any intermediaries or any intercession. So you certainly didn't need a bishop talking to God on your behalf. It was about a personal relationship. Every man, every woman, every child was in contact directly with God. But Charles liked bishops because you can control the bishops. You appoint them. And it's another way of extending your control over the church, over the country. So Charles was most insistent about bishops. So the Scots were saying, absolutely not. Over our dead bodies, literally, are you imposing bishops once again on us? So the war that began in 1639 was called the First Bishops' War. And the Scots won it. The Scots triumphed over the royalist forces. And it then led on directly to what most people know as the English Civil War. That was Charles I as well. And it was in trying to keep the funds going and keep his campaign going that he fell out with Parliament, which led to what everyone calls the English Civil War. But the English Civil War is much more accurately described as the War of Three Kingdoms because it involved Scotland and Ireland as well. The war swept across the whole of the British archipelago. Everybody was swept up into it. So it's remembered more accurately by historians as the War of the Three Kingdoms. But it was triggered in Scotland. The ill feeling that became the War of the Three Kingdoms, the English Civil War, was triggered by Charles I and his Book of Common Prayer that he tried to impose upon the Scots. So it had massive consequences. And of course, in 1643, the parliamentarians were really struggling in their war against the royalist armies. And so they enlisted the Scots, or they wanted the Scots to come and join up with them to help them fight the king. And the Scots agreed, but only if the English would sign what was effectively a version of the National Covenant. It was called the Solemn League and Covenant. And the the English parliamentarians had to sign up to this. So they de facto became signatories to the National Covenant as well. And then everybody knows, obviously, the Royalists lose the war. Charles is captured, eventually tried and executed. The king is executed. So it's, it's all been triggered. These are all the ripples that come out from this attempt to change the way in which Scottish people worshipped. And it generates this extraordinary document, the National Covenant of Scotland. So Charles needs money from Parliament to fight the first bishops' war, but Parliament won't give it without conditions, and this conflict between them eventually boils over into war. That's that's right, that's right. In order to continue to try and impose his own will across the whole country, Charles needs funds to be approved by Parliament. And it's when Parliament finally refuses to do what he wants that Charles spits his dummy out of the pram and the whole thing kicks off properly. He leaves London, there's a royalist force, there's people loyal to Parliament, and that becomes the the long, dreadful, bloody English Civil War. 
But even after Charles is put to death, you don't get to the end of the consequences of the National Covenant of Scotland. After Charles, there's Oliver Cromwell and the Commonwealth. But then after Cromwell, there's the Restoration. And Charles II comes back to the throne, 1660. And that Charles II is Charles I's son. So he's back on the throne. And he makes it plain right away that he's not going to have any truck with these Scottish dissident religious zealots as far as he's concerned either. And so for the next three decades, there's violence meted out against the Covenanters. This is when the war turns against those who are still loyal to the National Covenant of Scotland. And for for 30 years, the bloodshed continues as there are these desperate attempts to put down the, the Covenanters. So the whole thing's a religious horror show. To see the document, there's a copy of the National Covenant on display in St Giles Cathedral. Amongst the signatories is a glamorous figure called James Graham, first Marquis of Montrose. Now he began, he got involved in the fighting as a covenanter, as a signatory of the National Covenant of Scotland, but he, he changed sides. He decided eventually that he could not bear to see what was happening to the monarchy and a rebellion against the king, and so he switched sides and became a legendary supporter of, of the royalist cause. But also, go and see Greyfriars Kirkyard. Even today, it's a place of quiet. It's full of uh, gravestones to the great and the good, and, and also to the humble poor. John Grey is among them, the late owner of Greyfriars Bobby. There's a grave for Bobby himself. But really, set aside a moment or two to try and imagine what it was like to be inside the minds of the sort of people who signed that document and who were ready to live and to fight and to die martyrs' deaths because they were so determined to uphold their version of the Christian faith. And I find it fascinating and and inspiring and moving that there have been and still are people who will lay down their lives for their beliefs. And if you think that's just something nowadays that happens in other parts of the world in relation to other faiths, well, go to Greyfriars and think that as recently as the 17th century, there were Scots who were prepared to live and die for their belief in their God. Do you admire the steadfastness and determination of these people? It's the lengths that they were prepared to go to. We think about religious extremism now, and you think it's something that belongs in other parts of the world. People that are so intent on their faith that they'll kill themselves, and they'll kill other people. But it's part of, it has been part of the human condition. And here in the British Isles, we have had our own bloody share of religious unrest as one group decided that another group was so wrong about the way in which it understood God and the cosmos, they were prepared to go to war for it. And when some of those people were taken and challenged and told to recant and to renounce their faith, they said no and they were prepared to die the most appalling deaths rather than abandon their faith. People living and dying like that, that's part of Britain's story as well. It's not other people, it's us. A 
king with a god complex, going head to head with increasingly bold parliamentarians, a great storm swirling across the whole of the British Isles. Politics and power plays leading to armies being raised, the entire country drawn into war. Amidst the blood and gore of combat, the Battle of Lansdowne brings the personal tragedy of conflict into sharp relief. A country gripped by civil war. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 